dancing. If you tell me that Aurelia is but a giddy girl, I shall believe that you think so. But I shall know all the while what profound dignity and sweetness and peace lie at the foundation of her character. I say such things to Titbottom during the dull season at the office, and I've known him sometimes to reply with a kind of dry, sad humour, not as if he enjoyed the joke, but as if the joke must be made, that he saw no reason why I should be dull because the season was so. And what do I know of Aurelia, or any other girl? He says to me with that abstracted air. I, whose Aurelias were of another century and another zone. Then he falls into a silence, which it seems quite profane to interrupt. But as we sit upon our high stools at the desk, opposite each other, I leaning upon my elbows and looking at him, he with a sidelong face, glancing out of the window, as if it commanded a boundless landscape, instead of a dim, dingy office court, I cannot refrain from saying, Well, he turns slowly, and I go chatting on, a little too loquacious, perhaps, about those young girls. But I know that Tipbottom regards such an excess as venial, for his sadness is so sweet that you could believe it the reflection of a smile from long, long years ago. One day, after I had been talking for a long time, and we had put up our books and were preparing to leave, he stood for some time by the window, gazing with a drooping intentness, as if he really saw something more than the dark court, and said slowly, Perhaps you would have different impressions of things if you saw them through my spectacles. There was no change in his expression. He still looked from the window, and I said, Tipbottom, I did not know that you used glasses. I've never seen you wearing spectacles. No, I don't often wear them. I'm not very fond of looking through them. But sometimes an irresistible necessity compels me to put them on, and I cannot help seeing. Tipbottom sighed. Is it so grievous a fate to see? inquired I. Yes, through my spectacles, he said, turning slowly and looking at me with one solemnity. It grew dark as we stood in the office talking, and taking our hats we went out together. The narrow street of business was deserted. The heavy iron shutters were gloomily closed over the windows. From one or two offices struggled the dim gleam of an early candle, by whose light some perplexed accountant sat belated and hunting for his error. A careless clerk passed whistling, but the great tide of life had ebbed. We heard its roar far away, and the sound stole into that silent street like the murmur of the ocean into an island dell. You will come and dine with us, Tipbottom. He assented by continuing to walk with me and I think we were both glad when we reached the house and Prue came to meet us, saying, Do you know, I hoped you would bring Mr. Titbottom to dine. Mr. Titbottom smiled gently and answered, He might have brought his spectacles with him and have been a happier man for it. Prue looked a little puzzled. My dear, I said, You must know that our friend Mr. Titbottom is the happy possessor of a pair of wonderful spectacles. I've never seen them indeed, and from what he says, I shall be rather afraid of being seen by them.
Most short-sighted persons are very glad to have the help of glasses, but Mr. Tipbottom seems to find very little pleasure in his. It is because they make him too far-sighted, perhaps, interrupted Prue quietly as she took the silver soup ladle from the sideboard. We sipped our wine after dinner, and Prue took her work. Can a man be too far-sighted? I did not ask the question aloud. The very tone in which Prue had spoken convinced me that he might. At least, I said, Mr. Tipbottom will not refuse to tell us the history of his mysterious spectacles. I have known plenty of magic in eyes, and I glanced at the tender blue eyes of Prue, but I have not heard of any enchanted glasses. Yet you must have seen the glass in which your wife looks every morning, and I take it that glass must be daily enchanted, said Tipbottom with a bow of...